Are you ready for a follow-up? I am ready for a follow-up. Okay. I think. Wait, which follow-up? The queen, of course. Just kidding. <laughs> We're following up on Julian Assange. Can you just remind me where we left off with him? I hope I did the proper follow-up. Yeah, US government had won an appeal with the UK government in order to extradite him to the US. Okay, yes. This comes next. On Monday, January 24th, which is very close to when we're recording, the High Court in the United Kingdom has ruled that Julian can appeal to the Supreme Court, Britain's Supreme Court, that is, to stop his extradition. Would have been weird if it was France. I know. They just don't want to deal with it anymore. Well, I don't know if people are following where he is right now, because sometimes it's confusing, because he was in the Ecuador embassy. So that's where he is. That's where he needs to appeal. And if you'll remember, about a year ago, Judge Vanessa Barrister, if you need a reminder of her name, blocked his extradition on humanitarian grounds that if convicted in the US, Mr. Assange would be imprisoned in the ADX Florence, a supermax facility in Florence, Colorado, where isolation is extreme and mental health services are limited. The judge noted that Mr. Assange suffered from depression and had persistent thoughts of suicide, so that's why he wasn't extradited. Then that ruling was overturned last December by an appellate panel of the High Court which said Judge Barrister should have notified the U.S. Department of Justice of her views before issuing her ruling to afford it the opportunity to offer assurances to the court. This judge's name is actually Barrister? Yeah. Oh, hold on. Barrister. It's just kind of funny. Barrister. I think I was saying it wrong. Yeah. Because barrister is what you call a lawyer in court in Britain. So it would have been very ironic. I was mixing the S and the T. So they also added that since the ruling, the Department of Justice has provided UK officials with a package of assurances that Mr. Assange would not be imprisoned at ADX Florence or held according to special administrative measures. Restrictive solitary confinement reserved for terrorism and national security prisoners. The DOJ also said that it would agree to transfer Mr. Assange, who is originally from Australia, to an Australian prison to serve his sentence. And there is no reason why this court should not accept the insurance assurances as meaning what they say, the appeals judge says. There is no basis for assuming that the USA has not given the assurances in good faith. What does this mean for Julian? Well, I think it's obvious, but I can spell it out for you. Just kidding. This means Julian's lawyers can challenge the overturned ruling not to be extradited, which means he will be extradited. However, the court still has to agree to hear the case. The judges on Monday refused him permission for a direct appeal to the Supreme Court on their decision. They did say this case raises an issue of legal importance that he could ask the UT's top court to rule on. Lord Brunette, Lord Chief Justice, also said Mr. Assange's case had raised a legal question over the circumstances in which judges received and considered assurances from the U.S. about how he would be treated in prison. Amnesty International said while the organization welcomed the High Court's decision on the matter of U.S. assurances, it was concerned that the court had dodged its responsibility on ensuring issues of public importance were fully considered by the judiciary. 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 He added, the courts must ensure that people are not at risk of torture or other ill treatment. This was at the heart of the two other issues the High Court has now effectively vetoed. Thus will stall any extradition from the UK for now. And that's that. Well, until the US gets to appeal that. I don't think that's the highest court still. I feel like he's going to be extradited. But right now... Who freaking knows? And it sounds like they tried to meet a middle compromise and saying, okay, we will extradite him, but to Australia, because that's where we send our prisoners. Yeah, they just really want to get their hands on him. So I think the US is just promising the UK that they'll take good care of him. Yeah, sure, whatever. And so now he gets permission to appeal to the court. He doesn't get to do it. He just gets to like put in a plea to see if they'll hear his plea. So yeah, we're still waiting to see what kind of happens. And sorry, I thought he had won. That's that's correct. It's just that he gets to appeal now. So yeah, he gets to ask for a chance to appeal. He doesn't even like it's not a yes. He gets to appeal. He gets to ask if he can appeal and then be told yes or no. Isn't the legal system fun? No. 
Like every time that we talk about something within the legal system, I was getting everything wrong. (laughs) We always say like, is that the end of it? No, that just means they can move to the next step, which is about 40 different steps after that. No, not fun. And that's the update we have. I'm sorry to disappoint anybody who is waiting for the queen. Have they asked her about this yet? Technically, all this stems from her. So that's where all the laws come from is the queen. So the queen, I don't think they've asked her yet. Okay. She didn't come up at all. Pretty suspicious. It is suspicious. It all comes back to the queen again. But with that, I think we have a long episode ahead of us. So let's just get down to it. Cue the music. Let's go. It's going to be fun. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, now less lethal to cats. Just got that certification, so that's good. good. I'm happy that came through. Yes, apparently we are lower in zinc than we used to be, so. Good, I'm glad we got that sorted. Cats are just not as likely to die listening to us. (laughs) We are your ever-present hosts. At least when the podcast is on, Taylor and Chelsea, here today to talk to you about the cyclical events of workers' rights. Mostly it's historical sense at this time. We're at a point in workers' rights where we are seeing a lot of turmoil and conflict between employers and employees. Pretty much throughout the world, or at least in North America, pretty much all throughout it. And I thought it would be a good time in our podcast to go back over the history of historical strikes that have taken place in North America so that we can really see where at least past generations dealt with their struggle for rights in the workplace. We are going to cover a few of the more violent worker-led strikes that took place in the early 1800s and 1900s. And we're really going to, I think, talk about how kind of unions played an important role and kind of where we're at today. Anything to add, Chelsea? I agree completely with everything you just said. Okay, that's good. That clearly means you were listening. (laughs) Without further ado, I think where we're going to start is with the railroad strike of 1877. That's me. The Great Railway Strike of 1877, a.k.a. it also goes by the Great Upheaval. The greatness of this railway strike was due to the series of violent rail strikes which occurred in, you guessed it, 1877. I have you guessing a lot at everything I'm saying today across the United States. Well, across a portion of the United States, I'm getting away from myself. Leading up to the Great Strike, it was a tough year. It was the fourth year of an economic depression. After the Panic of 1873, now this is not the Great Depression, if you're up on your years of the Great Depression. This one was happening around this time, 1870, late 1870s. And I believe the Great Depression wasn't as long as this depression was. And there was this bitterness between workers and the leaders of the industry. Immigration from Europe was underway, as was the migration of rural workers into the cities, which increased the competition for jobs, and this allowed companies to drive down wages and easily lay off workers because they were aplenty. The strikes were caused by the third wage cut of 10% in one year announced by the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad in Martinsburg, West Virginia. This work was already poorly paid and it was after all a dangerous job with poor working conditions. I know I wouldn't have wanted to be doing that. The official strike starts July 14th after this announcement in Martinsburg, West Virginia, which is the third wage cut. And the strike lasts 45 days in total and an estimated 100 people were killed in the unrest and over a thousand had been jailed. Damage in its entirety was estimated at five to ten million dollars i'm really not sure why there's a five million dollar discrepancy in this well and especially if that is money at that time like that is a huge that's a amount large of money amount. and, and that's that a huge discrepancy amount. between those two. i know right i don't know i don't know i just went with it didn't question anything i just wrote it down so <laughs> at the time of these strikes the workers were not represented by trade unions as unions themselves were in their very infancy as they started to come about around the civil war which actually wasn't long before this i checked it out the city and state governments were aided by the national guard federal troops and private slash unofficial militias organized by the railway 
who fought against the workers, obviously. At its height, the strikes were supported by 100,000 workers. That is a lot. Especially for the population of the day. What would the U.S. population be in 1877? 600,000. That was a guess. <laughs> I'll take it as a fact. Okay. So let... 39 million. Okay. Is that a lot in comparison? Um, I would assume it's a lot. Are we confirming whether that's a lot? I don't know how to Google that. Okay. <laughs> it's a lot. That this is all set up for kind of what happened. I'm going to get into the fun stuff, the violence. So the strike happens on July 16th. 1877, the workers at the B&O station in Martinsburg, West Virginia, respond by uncoupling the locomotives, that's undoing them, for the layman person, in the station, confining them in the roundhouse and declaring that no trains would leave Martinsburg unless the cut was revoked. To which, the logical recourse of West Virginia Governor Henry M. Matthews was to send in the National Guard to restore train service and break up the crowd which had gathered, because this was going to have huge impacts on other parts of the economy. As you would guess, but I just felt like that was... A huge jump. Ultimately, they couldn't slash wouldn't restore train service of the 600 or so trains stranded in Martinsburg, so Matthews requested the assistance of federal troops. Once they arrived, trains did resume service July 20th, which would be four days later. Meanwhile, the strike was spreading along the main line of the B&O Railroad. It spreads into Cumberland, Maryland, which was a major railroad hub and railway workers stop freight and passenger trains. Maryland National Guards are called, and B&O President John Wirt Garrett, I like his middle name. Wirt? I would hate myself if I had work for a middle name. <laughs> I feel like I've heard his name before, and I'm not sure if it's just because I wrote his name right there. John Wirt Garrett. Okay. So they're marching, heading towards the B&O's general headquarters and main depot at the Camden Street Station. That means anything to you. I think it's important. The Maryland National Guard had to fight its way through sympathetic Baltimore citizens, rioters and striking workers, and ended up erupting into bloodshed along Baltimore Street. The National Guard was outnumbered and ended up firing volleys on an attacking crowd. They ended up killing 10 civilians and wounding 25. Riders injured several members of the National Guard, damaged B&O engines and cars, and burned portions of the train station. The National Guard was trapped in the Camden Yards, besieged by armed rioters until July 21st to the 22nd, when President Rutherford B. Hayes sent federal troops and the U.S. Marines to Baltimore to restore order. So that was Cumberland. That was all the violence that happened there. It also spreads to New York, Albany, Syracuse, and Buffalo. And on July 25th, 1877, workers gather on Van Wart Street rail crossing in Albany and wait for a train arrival. They then proceed to barrage the train with projectiles. They're pissed. Obviously, that's what pissed people do. And in come the militiamen, again, causing the crowd to get even more pissed because that just irritates them. And redirected projectiles onto the militiamen. I noticed that too. There seems to be no step between upset people mm -hmm. about a strike and bring in the militia. No, there wasn't. And I find that pretty, that would polarize me as well. I'd be like, you what? I just want you to take away the 10% wage cut and they're like well here come the militia well there's nothing i can do <laughs> militia's on its way <laughs> so on the second night of the attacks on the rail line the mayor pulls out the militia and sends in the police to protect the rail lines everyone is joining in on this not just railroad workers because of how they cut through the cities and dominated city life other people are upset at the railroad as well their resentment of the railroads this is becoming a tongue twister i'm saying it so much it's losing all meaning as well Railroads. what even is a railroad I know, it just sounds weird now. Railroads' economic power was expressed in physical attacks against them at a time when many workers' wages were lowered. Protesters included cross-class elements from other work sites, small businesses, and commercial establishments. Some protesters acted out of solidarity with the strikers, but many more vented militant displeasure against dangerous railroad traffic that crisscrossed urban centers in that area. 
That's the second time that that comes up in this sentence. So in Cumberland, they're just mad about where the railroads are placed as well. <laughs> and they do not like how it's impacting. So anybody life. gets to be pissed off at the railway for any reason. Everybody just seems yeah. to join in. I mean, who likes to be stopped at a railroad when you're trying to get somewhere waiting for a train? No one. That's who. That was New York. It also spreads to Pennsylvania. This is where the site of the worst violence to the strike occurs in Pennsylvania. On July 19, Eggman Gus Harris unilaterally refused to work on a double header. For anyone who doesn't know their train lingo, that is a train hauled by two engines, thus requiring fewer workers. FYI. And the rest of the crew joined Half him. the workers, in fact. Yeah. Because it can pull that, twice though. as much. Yeah. Ever seen one of those? Just kidding. No, I but I got a train guy who could tell me all about it. Okay, good. I need that connection. The resulting strike quickly grew and was joined by men from nearby iron mills and factories. Thomas Alexander Scoot. Nice last name. We should take work and scoot. Maybe we'll find a good first name in here. Of the Pennsylvania Railroad, described as one of the first robber barons. And I just had to stop all research here when they referred to him as a robber baron. And I was like, what You've is never a robber heard that baron? term? No. So then I went and found out what it meant. Okay. So it's, I like it. It's a fun term, um, which is a derogatory term. So it makes oh, it Oh, yeah. Better. They're evil billionaires, basically. I just am picturing the Hamburg. Pretty much. <laughs> but, okay, so it's derogatory, which is bonus. A term of social criticism originally applied to certain wealthy and powerful 19th century American businessmen. So there we have it. I learned something new. A lot of things new. But Robert Barron, was, it was one of my favorite takeaways. They gained their wealth through cutthroat business practices that likely are illegal today. But even then, the billionaires we have today fall into the similar suit for the most part. And it's just one of those terms that you would never hear anymore because it's just like one of those super outdated terms. We are but... definitely in different social networks because I bring it up several times a week. Robber Baron? Yeah, mostly because I do consider Elon Musk a robber baron. Okay. I've never even heard the term before. Anyhow, what was his name again? The Robber Oot. Baron. Thomas Alexander Scoot suggests that the strikers should be given, quotations, a rifle diet for a few days and see how they like that kind of bread. Could you imagine if somebody ever said that? I now? mean, there's some pretty bad ones from employers these days. They don't outright say, let's shoot the employees, though. <laughs> Give them a rifle. It's more veiled than that. You couldn't just outright say that because then they get another, like, massacre like this. Okay. Several Pennsylvania National Guard units are ordered into service by Governor John Jartranft, Jar including... That's, I did my that's best. That's a good there. name. Jartranft. Including the 3rd Pennsylvania Infantry Regiment after local forces didn't really do much. And they come in on July 21st of the year we're talking about. You know the one. And National Guard members bayoneted and fired on rock-throwing strikers, killing 20 people and wounding 20. Well, yeah, they had rocks. That's yeah. clearly the right response with that. They did. And plus, they wanted they wanted them not to do a wage decrease on them. Yeah. So that's reason enough to bayonet them. Rather than do away with the uprising, as I so suspected, this only added gasoline to the fire and they retaliate, forcing the National Guard to take refuge in the railroad roundhouse. What's that word again? Railroad. So the strikers set fire, completely destroying 39 buildings, 104 locomotives, and 1,245 freight and passenger cars. And I was assuming they would have set that roundhouse on fire as well but apparently they didn't i was fully thinking in that 39 buildings it was in there but the national that's guard surprising you know what maybe they had mad respect for the roundhouse uh, either that or maybe they just didn't want to murder all of them i mean yeah i don't know what happened there they never explained it and i just kind of assumed it was in that 39 buildings but lo and behold the next day the national guard mounted an assault on the strikers shooting their way out of the roundhouse that's where i knew it wasn't a part of the houses are usually made of like brick and cement so uh yeah. they couldn't set that on it's there. basically where you store the the locomotives when they're not going anywhere 
and yeah. it's round so that they can basically like turn the track in the middle so that any one of them could leave. Also, yeah. if you want to learn more about trains like that, please watch the very informative documentary Thomas the Tank Engine. It was time for Thomas to leave. He had seen everything. I was just going to say, because I'm pretty sure I've seen that on there. Out the National Guard come shooting their way and killing 20 more people on their way out of the city. And they just run right out of the city. <laughs> there is literally a month of bloodshed in Pittsburgh when finally President Rutherford B. Hayes sent in federal troops, as in West Virginia and Maryland, their federal troops, to end the strike. Also in Pennsylvania, 300 miles to the east, which was where Philadelphia is. Strikers battle the National Guard as well and set fire to much of the city center before Pennsylvania Governor John Hurtramp gained assistance and federal troops from President Hayes to put down the uprising. Then we move on to Reading, Pennsylvania, the third largest industrial city at the time. In Pennsylvania, of course, because that's where Reading, Pennsylvania comes from. They also break out into strike as this was the home of the engine works and shops of the Philadelphia and Reading Railway, an important place. Here the workers had been struck since April 1877. I'm not sure why they were striking for this long because now it's July and included fresh work stoppage by all classes of the railroads, local workforce, and included mass marches, blocking rail traffic, train yard arson, mobs tore up the track, and derailed cars. It was getting crazy in Reading, Pennsylvania. Workers also burned down the only railroad bridge connecting the West to prevent local National Guard companies from being mustered to actions in the state capital of Harrisburg or Pittsburgh. Vandenberg. Eventually the National Guard is brought in and they shoot 16 citizens. And I guess that's the end of that. And we move on to Shamokin, Pennsylvania. On July 25th, a thousand men and boys, many of them coal miners, marched to the Reading Railroad Depot. They looted the depot when the town announced it would pay them for only $1 a day for the emergency public employment. The mayor, who owned coal mines, organized an unofficial militia. It committed 14 civilian shooting casualties, resulting in the deaths of two persons. The National Guard shot 16 citizens here. Again, 16. Scranton, Pennsylvania. Insert the office theme here. And if we cannot, just picture it in your mind due to copyright issues. Because this is the same place. I know. I know it's the famous. Electric City. Script! The electric city! The day after railroad workers commenced a strike, August 1st, 1877, the general manager of Lackawanna, that really rolls off the tongue now that I have it down, Lackawanna, Iron and Coal Company, who was named William Walker Scranton, he returns fire on a group of rioters, strikers, and probably bystanders. All in all, four were killed and 20 to 50 were wounded. Pennsylvania governor declared Scranton to be under martial law. It really gets out of hand in Scranton. It was occupied by state and federal troops armed with Gatling guns. Later, the posse leader and about 20 of his men were charged with assault and murder. They were all acquitted. Under military occupation and suffering the effects of protracted violence against them, the miners ended their strike without achieving any of their demands. Keep in mind, as always, I'm doing the quickest rundown of these to give you like the most I can of the history. I thought it was important to just show you how violent this was city by city like it, it did really spread and it went fast actually except for the ones that were striking since april i don't know what was up with that that was pennsylvania it also spreads to illinois as in chicago illinois home of the mothman <laughs> july 24th the baltimore and ohio as well as the illinois central railroads came to a halt when angry mobs and unemployed citizens wreaked havoc on the rail yards demonstrators also shut down many other railroads throughout the state that i don't want to list here let's just say it was a lot these coal miners also like to stand in solidarity with the railroad workers as they also went on a strike as well in multiple pits across illinois let's just say the working class here is something that I saw in all the cities they're all like yeah you should be striking and we're just gonna like come stand here with you and get attacked they really like stood in solidarity I think just because there was really like poor working standards at that time and plus everybody hated waiting at railroads oh yeah and I think everybody was kind of in agreement if we stand for you 
if we do this True. next, you'll stand for us and hopefully get a domino And effect. I get, I will get to that. You bring up a good point. I hope I put in my notes. In Chicago, the Working Man's Party organized demonstrations that drew crowds of 20,000 people. The Working Man's Party was established in 1876. That was a year before these strikes and was one of the first Marxist-influenced political parties in the U.S. There was actually a few of them at this time and I think they got quite a bit of support. Judge Thomas Drummond of the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit was overseeing numerous railroads that had declared bankruptcy in the wake of the earlier financial panic of 1873. He ruled that a strike or other unlawful interference with the trains will be a violation of the United States law and the court will be bound to take notice of it and enforce the penalty. Drummond told the U.S. Marshals to protect the railroads and ask for federal troops to enforce his decision. He subsequently had strikers arrested and tried them for contempt of court. The mayor of Chicago recruited 5,000 men as unofficial militia to restore order. Can they still do that? In the that? U.S. they can still. Okay. And especially all states are allowed to form their oh. own militias. So that's kind of part of the Second Amendment was really about huh. militia rights. Interesting. You really don't hear about those. These I mean, days. you hear a lot about militias, but man, a lot of them yeah. sound sketchy as hell. Okay. I just learned another thing. Okay. So they were doing okay, but then the Illinois National Guard and the U.S. Army came in as, as well. The day later, on July 25th, violence between police and the demonstrators erupts because why wouldn't it? And it comes to a peak the next day, July 26th. This battle actually has a name, which is called the Battle of the Viaduct. Not sure why. As well, it was violent. News headings read, Terrors reign the streets of Chicago, given over the howling mobs of thieves and cutthroats. An estimated 20 men slash boys lost their lives. They're saying boys because there were no child labor laws at this time. And there is definitely child labor going on. So they were part of the strike. Well, yeah, their well. tiny hands are better at some things. Yeah, they can just get into all the spots where big hands can't get in. None of anyone who lost their lives were enforcement or troops of any type. Tons more wounded and loss of property was valued at millions of dollars in 1877 monies. So that was Illinois. It also spread to Missouri. July 21st, you probably guessed it, working in the industrial rail hub of East St. Louis, which is not Missouri. St. Louis. St. Louis. I knew I was going to do that. East St. Louis, which is not Missouri, halt all freight traffic, and the city remained in control of the strikers for almost a week. They took over the city completely. Anyhow, the St. Louis Working Men's Party leads a group of approximately 500 men across the Missouri River in an act of solidarity with about a thousand workers on strike. In a catalyst for labor unrest spreading and thousands of workers in several industries were striking for the eight-hour workday and a ban on child labor, a first general strike in the U.S. The strike on both sides of the river was ended after the governor appealed for help and gained the intervention of some 3,000 federal troops and 5,000 deputized special police. <laughs> I had trouble on that one even reading it. They killed around 18 people. As an aside, I've covered what happened kind of city by city as the spread as best I could, like I said. The leaders of the major railway fraternal organizations, which include the Brotherhood of the Locomotive Firemen, the Order of the Railway Conductors, and the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers, appeared to have been frightened of the riots and of the authorities as the authorities were, and many denied the strike. Many of the middle and upper classes, recalling the Paris Commune of some six years earlier, assumed that the aggressive strikes had been organized communist insurrections. In Chicago, the Marxist Working Man's Union did provide more structure and organization to the demonstrations than elsewhere, but the actions they encouraged were quickly suppressed by the police and the National Did you Party. learn anything about the Paris Commune? No. I read okay. something briefly about it, but I didn't put anything Okay, in yeah, there. it's uh, basically everybody's terrified at this time about the spread of communism, because there was a workers' commune set up in Paris, basically, that was self-sufficient, nobody really drew a wage, and they all just kind of worked to as they saw fit. Basically, everybody that was involved really liked it, and then the government came in and destroyed it and killed what? everybody. What? That doesn't seem yeah. fair. Okay, well... 
Interesting. Okay. I did see something briefly about it being to do with communism, but thank you for interjecting there and putting that in. So only in St. Louis was there anything approaching an organized effort to take control, but by the end of July, the strikes had collapsed almost everywhere. The strikes dissipated because the federal armies did not break as they went from city to city, unlike the militias. They also collapsed because they were not organized in their strikes. They were just spontaneous pissed off people so it kind of lost steam after everyone got their frustration out and no one rallied them or took control to organize their pissed offness to kind of put it towards greater good other than just breaking things and burning rage needs guidance sometimes This really did need some guidance. In the end, more than half of the freight in the country had come to a halt and the strike accomplished actually not a whole lot for these people who were actually striking and breaking stuff in their direct relation to this event is what I mean by that. There was some stuff that did come from this. Not a whole lot for those guys because everything was so disorganized for what they were striking for. Wages did continue to be cut for them after that. So it didn't Generally, employers, the last thing they want to do is give in to pressure to strikes. Like if somebody comes and says, we're striking to get pay cuts taken away. If you give in, basically their thought is, is that they know that they can win and that they can easily ask for something else under threat of strike because worked last time and basically if you do that you doom your entire business yeah i could get that what did come of this it showed the power of the workers especially when it came to changing status quo by any means necessary so it definitely showed how many people could amass and the damage that they could do when they weren't treated fairly another thing that happened was business leaders started planning to prevent more chaos like this Obviously, they were able to plan in advance, and many states enacted conspiracy statutes. They also formed new National Guard units, and fearing the social disruption, many cities built armories to support the new units. These defensive buildings still stand as symbols of the effort to suppress the labor unrest of this period. Little known fact of me. (laughs) I did not know that. Armories all around, and we always kind of forget that they're there to stop us from (laughs) enjoying our jobs. Write it down, everybody. Write it down on your notepad. Your journey to the fringe notepad. Unions also became better organized because, I mean, they got their point across, but at what cost? Especially to them. They lost people. People died. And they didn't even, they still got the wage cuts. They got more wage cuts. So death and the gain of literally nothing for which they struck in the first place. That's what they got. It's disappointing. I mean, they could have gone somewhere great. Public awareness was also increased of the grievances of the railroad workers, and on May 1st, 1880, while the B&O Railroad had the lowest wage rates of any major railroad established, the Baltimore and Ohio Employees Relief Association, which provided coverage for sickness, injury from accidents, and death. And then in 1884, it was the first major employee to offer a pension plan. Now, this was three years later. I'm not sure it had anything to do with the strike, But there you have it. That is the 1887 Railway Massacre. Just kidding. That is called... I'm scrolling. What's it called again? The Great Great Railroad Strike of 1877. A.K.A. the Great Upheaval. And yeah, just so that it's not left on a totally negative point. Yes, nothing came of this strike. But you can damn well bet next time they came and actually asked about those wages and those benefits started rolling in. It wasn't necessarily 100% to do with this, but in the back of the employer's mind is what happened last time they didn't treat the employees right. Yes. Man, that was messy. It made everyone take notice. And how much people hated the railroads and would just start striking and flipping cars. Even just the regular people who lived in the city were like, yeah, fuck those railroads. Let's flip some cars. I hate (laughs) them. (laughs) I'm going to go join. Okay, that naturally takes us into our next strike we're going to talk about, and that is the Pullman strike of 1894. And there's a topic that it didn't really come up in yours, and I'm curious if it did at all, just like in your research. Did you learn about company towns? They play a part in both of the two strikes I'm going to be looking at. So I should just do a quick rundown of what a company town is. 
basically before the invention of the highway system in the cars, people lived fairly close to where they worked. And a lot of work needed to be done in remote locations. So businesses owned by very wealthy individuals would build a town around a factory or a mine. And these were known as company towns. People would move there with their families, live in houses that were owned by the company, would pay rent to that company, would go to work for that company, and then go get drunk or have some other entertainment in a company store. Yeah, oh. very common in the 1800s and early 1900s. Their niceness really varied greatly depending on who your employer was. Also, really the conditions within the camp. And how you got paid. They would bring in store owners who were paid by the company, teachers who were paid by the company. Churches would open in the towns. They would have small parks. But everybody basically had to live in the company towns because that was the only place that was near enough to actually work there. A lot of companies would also pay their employees and company vouchers so that they could only actually purchase anything from the company town. So they kept their costs very low. So you would get paid and let's just say 100 scoot bucks a month. 25 yeah. of those scoot bucks would go to pay your rent for the house that you're renting from scoot. 50 of those would go to your groceries that you're buying from scoot because he brought them in. And then if you had anything left over, you couldn't really spend it anywhere else but that town. So yeah. it was really good for the employer because they couldn't do anything outside of the town. What's the point in saving a lot of money if you can just spend it in the town? Yeah, exactly. And most importantly, traveling salesmen couldn't come through the town and get people to buy things from them, too. <laughs> Maybe that's a So problem. that is what a company town was. Now it comes to the Pullman strike. Now, Pullman Palace Car Company was a car manufacturing company. And by car, I mean train cars, not like Ford Motor Company. Railroad. Like uh, yeah, I can't say it anymore railroad now that my one. stuff is done. <laughs> another one. Damn real. So Pullman had built a company town, and it was called Pullman, actually. It is just outside of Chicago. At least it was at the time. It now is subsumed by Chicago. It was designed as a model community by its namesake founder and owner, George Pullman. From the outside, Pullman appeared to be a model town, and they did guided tours to tourists to give them impression that it's a really nice place to live. Town, however, was not that great, and homes on the outskirts of the towns were shabbily built, and some without any kind of plumbing at all. The rent of these houses were usually about 25% higher than that of the area. And in addition, in order to work for Pullman, you had to live in one of the houses. So even if you didn't want to live there, you had to. Because it's too expensive. Well, that was just a condition of the employment. When you sign yeah. the contract, you got to move into a Pullman house. Yeah, that's 25% more expensive. Yeah. Okay. That's and this one, again, too, like yours, we begin the story at what's called the Panic of 1893, which led to an economic decline. The railroad stopped purchase of new passenger cars from Pullman, and the company cut the already low wages of its workers by 25% over the course of about four pay cuts, but did not introduce any corresponding reductions in rents and other charges at Pullman. Oh, that's not one fair. thing, too. I should mention this now while I'm remembering it with vouchers for your system of pay in a company town. If you gave people raises, you could always just raise the price of everything around them. So you didn't really give them raises. Oh, this sounds yeah, awful. they had really tight control in company towns. Anyhow, where was I? The company cut the already low wages of its workers by about 25 percent, but did not introduce corresponding reductions in rents and other charges at Pullman. When this company laid off workers and lowered wages, it did not reduce rents and the workers called for a strike. Among the reasons for the strike were the absences of democracies within the town of Pullman and its politics, the rigid paternalistic control of the workers by the company and excessive water and gas rates, and a refusal by the company to allow workers to buy and own houses. As a result of everything I just said, many workers and their families faced starvation, and when a delegate of workers tried to present their grievances about low wages, poor living condition, and 16-hour workdays directly to the company's president, George Pullman, he refused to meet with them and ordered them fired. The delegates then voted and Pullman workers walked off the job on May 11, 1894. As soon as the plant had emptied, company representatives posted signs at all the gates, the works are closed until further notice. 
Okay, good. I'm glad something... No, that was them shutting it down just for then. So many of the Pullman factory workers had joined the American Railway Union, and this was led by a man named Eugene Debs. We have talked about him before, but I'm going to bring up at the end how we had talked about him because I don't think you'll remember who he is. Who? Just kidding. Okay. (laughs) To show the power of the ARU, the American Railway Union, Eugene Debs supported their strike by launching a boycott in which ARU members refused to run trains containing Pullman cars. At the time of the strike, approximately 35% of Pullman workers were members of the ARU, and the plan was to force the railroads to bring Pullman to compromise. Debs began the boycott on June 26, 1894. Within four days, 125,000 workers on 29 railroads had walked off the job rather than handle a Pullman car. Railroads coordinated their response through the General Managers Associations, which had been formed in 1886 and included 24 lines linked to Chicago. Railroads began hiring replacement workers, also known as strike breakers, which increased hostilities. Many African Americans were recruited as strike breakers and cross picket lines as they feared that the racism expressed by the ARU would lock them out of another labor market. This added racial tensions to the union's predicament. On June 29th, 1894, Eugene Debs hosted a peaceful meeting to rally support for the strike from railroad workers at Blue Island, Illinois. Afterwards, groups within the crowd became enraged and set fire to nearby buildings and derailed locomotives. Yeah, apparently it is really easy to foment a crowd to a point where they're like, yeah, let's tip that train. Yeah, well, all their anchors towards the trains that they've made. Or you know what? Somewhere. Maybe that's why you don't see a lot of speeches given around trains anymore. No, why would you want yeah, to? Yeah, it just leads people to tipping trains. Yeah. <laughs> Association with violence. Elsewhere in Western states, sympathy strikers prevented transportation of goods by walking off the job, obstructing railroad tracks, or threatening and attacking strike breakers. This increased national attention and the demand for federal action. The strike was handled by U.S. Attorney General Richard Olney, who was appointed by President Grover Cleveland, not the character from Sesame Street. There are two different Grovers. Oh, I got excited there. That Grover's pretty good. I haven't seen a picture of him, so I don't know if they bear resemblance. Also, Grover Cleveland is the only president to serve in office in non-consecutive terms in what is known in my office as the Cleveland Sandwich. Because we talk about presidents a lot for some reason. That sounds delicious. A majority of the president's cabinet in Washington, D.C. backed Olney's proposal for federal troops to be dispatched to Chicago to put an end to the rule of terror, as they described it. In comparison to his $8,000 compensation as attorney general, Olney had been a railroad attorney and had a $10,000 retainer from the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad. Olney got an injunction from a circuit court justice, Peter S. Groskup, and William Allen Woods, both anti-union judges, prohibiting ARU officials from compelling or encouraging any impacted railroad employees to refuse or fail to perform any of their duties. The injunction was disobeyed by Debs and other ARU leaders, and federal forces were dispatched to enforce it. Debs, who had been hesitant to start the strike, put all his efforts into it, and he called on ARU members to ignore the federal court injunction in the U.S. Army. This is what Debs said. Strong men and broad minds only can resist the plutocracy and arrogant monopoly. Do not be frightened at troops, injunctions, or a subsidized press. Quit and remain firm. Commit no violence. American Railway Union will protect all, whether members or not, when strike is off. Debs wanted a general strike of all union members in Chicago, but this was opposed by Samuel Gompers, head of the AFL, which I don't know what that stood for. I did not write that down, unfortunately. It's another union, though. And other established unions, and it failed. Eugene Debs first welcomed the military, believing that they would help to keep the peace and allow the strike and boycott to continue peacefully. The military, however, was not impartial. They were there to ensure that the trains ran, which would eventually weaken the boycott. Federal forces broke the ARU's attempt to shut down the national transportation system city by city. Thousands of U.S. Marshals and 12,000 U.S. Army troops, led by Brigadier General Nelson Miles, took part in the operation. President Cleveland claimed that he had a constitutional responsibility for the mail. However, getting the trains moving again also helped further his fiscally conservative and economic interests and protect capital, which was far more significant than the mail disruption. His lawyers argued that the boycott violated the Sherman Antitrust Act and represented a threat to public safety. The arrival of the military and the subsequent deaths of workers and violence led to further outbreaks of violence, 
during the course of the strike. A total of 30 workers were killed, 57 were wounded, and it's estimated that another 40 were killed in other states, with property damage exceeding $80 million in 1894. What ends with this? Well, Debs was arrested on federal charges, including conspiracy to obstruct the mail, as well as disobeying and direct order to him by the Supreme Court stopped obstructing railways and to dissolve the boycott. At the conspiracy trial, his lawyer argued that it was the railways, not Debs and his union, that met in secret and conspired against their opponents. Sensing that Debs would be acquitted, the prosecution dropped the charges when a juror took ill. Although the lawyer also represented Debs at the United States Supreme Court for violating federal injunctions, Debs was sentenced to six months in prison. And Eugene Debs actually ends up in prison a lot. He was the guy running Yeah, he was the head of the union. Oh, good. He went to prison. Yeah, a lot. Early in 1895, General Graham erected a memorial obelisk in the San Francisco National Cemetery at Presidio in honor of four soldiers of the 5th Artillery killed in Sacramento train crash on July 11, 1894 during the strike. The train wrecked crossing a trestle bridge purportedly dynamited by a Union member. Graham's monument included the inscription, Murdered by Strikers, a description he hotly defended. The obelisk remains in place to this day. Following his release from prison in 1895, ARU President Eugene Debs became a committed advocate for socialism, helping in 1897 to launch the Social Democracy of America, a forerunner to the Socialist Party of America, and he ran for president in 1900 for the first of five times as head of the Socialist Party ticket. And that's where we've mentioned him before. He has run for president several times, usually from jail. We have mentioned that before, haven't we? Civil as well as criminal charges were brought against the organizers of the strike, and Debs in particular. The Supreme Court issued a unanimous decision in re-Debs that rejected Debs' actions. The Illinois governor, John P. Algand, was incensed at Cleveland for putting the federal government at the service of the employers and for rejecting Atguild's plan to use his state militia rather than the federal troops to keep order. Cleveland's administration appointed a national commission to study the causes of the 1894 strike, and it found that Pullman's paternalism partly to blame and described the operation of his company town to be un-American. In 1898, the Illinois Supreme Court forced Pullman Company to divest ownership in the town as its company chartered did not authorize such operations and the land was annexed to Chicago. This is the big part at the end. In 1894, in an effort to conciliate organized labor after this strike, President Grover Cleveland and Congress designated Labor Day as a federal holiday in contrast with the more radical May 1st holiday, which is known as May Day throughout the world outside of North America where we have Labor Day, which is in September. Legislation for the holiday was pushed through Congress six days after the strike ended. I'm learning so much. And that is the Pullman strike of 1894. Nice. It is funny that like two of the big ones to start off with are trains, but it makes a lot of sense as they really were what settled the West. It is. And uh, the other thing that I'm finding interesting is how much socialism and communism have come up. Well, I believe Karl Marx would still be alive in one of these, at least. He was friends with Abe Lincoln. They were pen pals. So he's alive pretty close to this. Oh, yeah, I guess so, because... Civil War was only like a couple of years before mine. Yeah, it was in the 1860s. So Karl Marx died in 1883. He was still alive when your strike had happened. His theories are just spreading around, and he's really talked a lot about the civil unrest that the working class is going to be put through, and that this would lead to socialism. So this has everybody above working class really freaked out, and hence why the armies are responding in the ways that they are. Well, they really quelled that, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, although it is funny that I've noticed a lot in all, both the strikes I talked about and will be talking about and your strike, the separation of state and federal right to bring in the armies is different. Because yes. in yours, it really starts out with the militias. The militias fail, so they bring in the army. In mine, it was just the army. And then the governor gets pissed off that he couldn't bring in his militia. And then this next story is going to come up again. So Okay. I'm looking forward to it. Now we're going to talk about something that is not train related. Sorry for our train enthusiasts out there. You mean you no offense. Now we're going to talk about coal and the strike better known as the Battle of Blair Mountain. It's not necessarily a strike in itself. It actually took me so long to wrap my head around what was actually being fought over in this story. 
So I'm going to have to explain it. There's a lot of setup in this. Ask questions as we go if you have any, okay? I mostly okay. do. So at the time, 1920, miners in West Virginia lived under what was considered an industrial police state. According to historian Charles B. Keeney, they not only resided in company housing in company towns where they purchased exorbitantly priced goods from company uh, stores, company. but they and their families suffered under the scrutiny of mine guards who represented the combined forces of the coal industry and local government. Miners were subject to evictions, beatings, and even murder at the behest of the coal industry what they called King Cole in local parlance. Really reminds me of Nat King Cole. I don't know if that's where he drew the name from or not. That's okay. Grover was in your last The area story. we're going to be focusing on first is Mingo County. It is in the southwest portion of West Virginia, which is fairly far away from Charleston, which is the capital of West Virginia. West Virginia was just ridiculously filled with coal. It still is, and that's kind of the big industry there still. But it was prosperous at this point just due to all of the coal that was there. Mingo County mine owners expressly prohibited unionizing. There's a town within Mingo County called Matawan with a police chief by the name of Sid Hadfield. This is going to be important. The coal industry within this area basically put in their contracts. Uh, it's called a yellow dog contract, which is illegal now, but it expressly says in that contract, I as an employee will never unionize. And it was considered legal by the Supreme Court at the time. It was a very pro-business Supreme Court in the U.S. in the early 1900s. Should they even hear talks that employees were getting unionized or thinking about it, they would be terminated immediately, which also meant eviction. With your family living with you in rural West Virginia, that's pretty terrible, seeing as how there's nowhere really to go, except get on the trains and go somewhere else. This is all just shortly after World War I. Uh, World War I saw a big expanse of unionization within the U.S., mostly because the U.S. supplied the rest of the world as well as sent soldiers over. When the soldiers left, there weren't a lot of workers. There was a lot to get done, so they had to treat these workers nice. Once the war ended and people all came back, the workers had grown accustomed to being treated fairly and didn't really like being treated inappropriately. So this is where unionization really starts to take a hold within a lot of the U.S. Finally. It starts to take the coal industry as well in most of West Virginia, with about 50% of the coal miners in the last decade joining unions. However, it wasn't happening in Mingo County. Because they couldn't. Yes, but in 1920... Some 3,000 of the 4,000 miners in Matawan joined a union and were summarily fired. The coal companies then hired a company by the name of Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, which is a very well-known at the time union-busting group who would supply guards for the company towns, break unions, and even an assassination or two when they were needed. These yeah. guys were hired to evict the families of the former employees. The first family they evicted was a woman and her children, and the woman's husband was not at home at the time. They forced them out at gunpoint and threw their belongings into the road under a light but steady rain. The miners who saw it were furious and sent word to town. As these agents walked to the train station to leave town, police chief Sid Hatfield and a group of deputized miners confronted them and told them they were under arrest. Albert Feltz, one of the named people in this company, replied that, in fact, he had a warrant for Hatfield's arrest. Testerman, the mayor of the town, who was also there, was alerted, and he ran out into the street after a miner shouted that Sid had been arrested. Hatfield's backed into the store, and Testerman asked to see the warrant. After reviewing it, Mayor Testerman exclaimed, This is a bogus warrant. Hatfield said Feltz shot the mayor, and with these words, a gunfight erupted and Chief Hatfield shot the agent Albert Feltz dead. Testerman, together with Albert and Lee Feltz, were among the ten men killed. Three from the town and seven from the agency. This gunfight became known as the Matawan Massacre, and Chief Sid Hatfield became an immediate legend and hero to the Union members. He was a symbol of hope that the oppression of coal operators and their higher guns could be overthrown. Throughout the summer and into the fall of 1920, the Union gained strength in Mingo County, as did the resistance of coal operators. There were sporadic shootouts occurring up and down the Tug River. There were evictions happening for families and workers. When they were evicted, the UMW, United Mine Workers Union, set up tent cities 
basically these were places where you could go live with your family and provide you food, shelter, and medicine when it's needed, and they'll get you back on your feet. Yeah. And in late June, state police under the command of Captain Brokus raided the Lick Creek tent colony near Williamson. Miners were said to have fired on Brokus and Martin's men from the colony. And in response, the state police shot and arrested miners, ripped the canvas tents to shreds, and scattered the mining family's belongings. Both sides were bolstering their arms, and Sid Hatfield, the chief, continued to fuel the resistance, specifically by converting a jewelry store into a gun shop. On January 26, 1921, the trial of Hatfield for the killings during the Matawan Massacre took place. It was in the national spotlight and brought attention to the miners' cause. Hatfield's stature and mythical status grew as the trial proceeded. He posed and talked to reporters, fanning the flames of his own legend. And all men were acquitted in the end, but overall the Union was facing significant setbacks. 80% of mines had reopened with imported replacements and ex-strikers who signed yellow dog contracts to return to work. In mid-May of 1921, Union miners launched a full-scale assault on non-Union mines. In a short time, the conflict had consumed the entire Tug River Valley. This three-day battle had finally ended by a flag of truce and the implementation of martial law. From the beginning, the miners perceived the enforcement of martial law as one-sided. Hundreds of miners were arrested. The smallest of infractions could mean imprisonment, while those on the side of law and order were seen as immune. The miners responded with guerrilla tactics and sabotage, which leads to another trial for Hatfield. He traveled to McDowell County, next county over, to stand trial on charges of dynamiting a coal tipple. Didn't look up what a tipple is. I don't think it matters for this story. I was just going to ask. It's a fun word as well. Just like Robert yeah. Barron. Along with him traveled his good friend, Ed Chambers, and their wives. As they walked up the courthouse stairs, unarmed and flanked by their wives, a group of Baldwin Felt's agents standing at the top of the stairs open-fired. Hatfeld was killed instantly. Chambers rolled to the bottom of the stairs. Despite Sally Chambers' protests, one of the agents ran down the stairs and shot Chambers once more point-blank in the back of the head. Hatfeld and Chambers' bodies were returned to Matawan, and the word of the slaying spread throughout the mountains. The miners, angry that Hatfeld had been murdered and knowing the assassins would escape punishment, began to take up arms and pour out of their mountain settlements and began actions such as patrolling and guarding the area. Sheriff Don Chafin sent Logan County troopers to the Little Coal River area, where armed miners captured the troopers, disarmed them, and sent them fleeing. From here, 5,000 miners and their union leaders, Keeney and Mooney, went to the capital of West Virginia, Charleston, to rally, but it lacked direction as many wanted to deal with their particular region's issue. There were several who wanted to go to Logan County and deal with the officer there. There were some that wanted to break martial law in Matawan, so they didn't really know what to do, or Mingo County, sorry. The leader stepped down, and a new radical leader by the name of Billy Blizzard took over, which is just a fantastic name. It is. It reminds me of a cowboy. The group marched to Mingo County, but had to go through Logan County and through what is known as the Blair Mountain Gap. The sheriff of Logan County, Chafin, built entrenchments and placed machine guns at the top of the two peaks overlooking Blair Mountain Gap. They had also found and hired three private planes, which they armed with homemade bombs. Oh On God. August 25th, Governor of West Virginia, Morgan, asked Harding for help. Warren G. Harding is the president at this time. He had asked him before, which I forgot to mention, when there was unrest, to send federal troops in. But he said, nah, this is a militias thing. You should have a militia in your state. But West Virginia did not have a militia, so they were unable to do that. On August 25th of 1921, mm -hmm. Governor Morgan at once again asked Warren G. Harding, president at the time, for help, and he sent a senior general by the name of Bandholes to check out what's going on. Bandholes summarized what he discovered. He went to the two guys who had held that rally in Charleston and said, these are your people. I'm going to give you a chance to save them, and if you cannot turn them back, we are going to snuff them out like that. This will never do. There are several million unemployed people in this country now, and this thing might assume proportions that would be difficult to handle. These two rally leaders went and talked to their people, and because a lot of them 
had been part of World War One. They did respect the federal troops, and a lot of them decided that they would return home, thousands of them, which they intended to do on August 27th, but the trains were running late, and while they were waiting for the trains, they had heard about what else happened that day. Chafin, the chief of Logan County, had sent 290 police to Clotier, which is a town in Logan County, and they began arresting strikers. However, when they got there, they were ambushed by a group of miners. A firefight had broke out. Rumors spread that women and children were being shot, and all miners who intended to return home reversed their plans, and they went into Blair Mountain, and they planned on attacking Logan County to free those held in prison. On August 30th, Warren G. Harding made an ultimatum, leave within 48 hours or face the United States Army. On the night of August 30th, 70 miners snuck up Blair Mountain, which had its entrenchment at the top from the police, and they ran into three drunk deputies. A fight occurs, two deputies die, and one miner dies. On August 31st, the fight begins. The entrenched police used machine guns to hold back the miners and dropped makeshift gas and nail bombs from aircrafts. Despite the miners' numbers, they lacked communication and organization to overwhelm the entrenched foes. And sorry, I didn't put numbers. It's somewhere around 9,000 miners that are here and 3,000 deputies. Fighting keeps to a standstill on August 31st, but by September 1st, the police were running low on ammunition. This is coincidentally the same time that Harding's ultimatum expires and the Air Force arrived with their planes to signal that federal troops were on their way. The miners pulled back at this news and on September 3rd, the army took control of the area with little to no resistance and a ceasefire was agreed to. An estimated 1 million bullets were fired during this battle. However, only 20 to 100 people were killed. I saw it probably closer to about 65. No official numbers, though, on how many actually died. Once it was all done, the army tried to figure out how it got to literal battle. General Bandholes, who blamed those two rally organizers, flipped his blame to the police chief, Chafin, for the trains being late and particularly for the ill-advised and ill-timed advanced movement on state constables on August 27th, resulting in bloodshed. Governor Morgan, after this, decided to link the United Mine Workers to international socialism and asked the army to arrest the ringleaders. This request, however, was refused. The FBI explicitly stated that the radical group had hatred for the mine owners alone and not at international capitalism and therefore they did not deem them socialists. The King Cole won this battle with UMW as membership plummeted from more than 50,000 miners to approximately 10,000 over the next several years. However, it did overall win the war as in 1935, following the Great Depression and the beginning of the New Deal, under President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, UNW fully organized in southern West Virginia. However, it is often forgotten about because primarily the coal industry and its supporters in state government, Mr. Keeney and other historians have said these industries have tried to smother any public discussion of this history. State officials demanded that any mention of Blair Mountain be stripped from federal oral histories, and a 1931 state law regulated the study of social problems, and for decades, the mine wars were left entirely out of school history textbooks. Today, the battlefield is owned in large part by coal operators who until recently planned to strip mine Blair Mountain itself. I found this interesting, just a little tidbit to add to the end of it. Some workers during the 1877 railroad strike, which began in West Virginia, wore red bandanas as a symbol of their union solidarity, and coal miners in the state later picked up this tradition and were commonly referred to by company mine guards as rednecks. Oh, what? Yeah, so if you wore a red scarf, that meant you were part of the union and a redneck. Very different connotation than we think of as today. Yeah, I wonder if that's where it came I from. couldn't find the actual etymology. The guy, Keeney, the historian, talked about this. I read a, it was a good article on Jacobin about it. And he differentiated, there's two different rednecks. There's rednecks as one word, which really talks about the hillbillies and the people that are living in the woods. Hmm. And redneck as two words, which connotes the association with the union. Okay, well, you would think it would be associated somehow, whoever came to the other one, but not necessarily. I'd be curious if it was just like kind of getting rid of the word as a good thing from popular culture, because that's kind of like where the term jaywalker comes from. They wanted to be little people walking in the street because they wanted cars to be in the street. So they called them jays, which was an insult back in the day. 
Oh, I'm learning so much on this But one. that is the Battle of Blair Mountain, which is the largest battle on U.S. soil that did not occur during the Civil War. Wow. I've heard about it before, but I didn't know that's what it was, so I'm not sure in what connotation I I don't know. It. Maybe Blair Witch. It's a mystery. No. Really? Is no, it in there? I don't oh. know where the Blair Witch was. Wasn't it in Kentucky or something? I can't remember. It's it been so been. long since I was. But so. yeah, for those of you who have stuck all the way to the end here, those rights that we have in pretty much everywhere now, the eight-hour work day, the 40-hour work week, the weekends, overtime. Not having to work as child, a child labor laws all stem from these violent strikes that our previous generations fought hard for. There were many people that were injured or killed in strikes by militias and army that were called in by the government and the employers. We are many and we are mighty and people need to remember that, despite the yeah. fact that we don't really kill. There's a lot of lessons and learning in this episode. Yeah. Chelsea, any final thoughts? I mean, it's interesting. You never really see strikes happening like this anymore. So I think it's important to see kind of where it started from because it's not even something that I was aware of, any of this. And I feel see, like it's intentionally not really discussed or taught because... People don't want you to remember that there's strength in numbers and we actually have the numbers, not, not the people in yeah. charge. I, guess. I almost feel it's a lot like how you always hear peaceful protests or how you get things done. Go out there and protest. When really, if you look at history, there are very few examples of peaceful protests doing shit all. It's yeah. the violent ones that lead to reform. Just look at these things. I mean, in my instance, they didn't get very much, but it sure made the other guys take yeah. note. But yeah, I think it's an important part, which is why we're talking about it, because we like to talk about things that will impart wisdom onto you. That are on the fringe. Or spooky yeah. things. But yeah, I think it's definitely important because of what we just Yeah, <laughs> and if nothing else, we have learned today that workers are strong, united, and can flip over a train. And yes. often do, because fuck trains. So yeah. again, to the train enthusiasts out there. <laughs> I hate them. <laughs> Always holding up traffic. They're noisy as fuck. And they bring in the hobos. <laughs> they used to, man. I... We should do the history of the hobo riding the train at some point. It was a very noble profession. I don't think that's a thing. No, it's anymore. not. I think that's long enough. We have been going a long time. We have been Journey to the Fringe, here to remind you that the real conspiracy is probably the friends you make along the way. They are a conspiracy. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in depth. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Hey.